0: What I wanted to do the month of August uh, was not to jump right back into our series in 1 Corinthians, uh, but I just wanted to share some passages of Scripture. Uh, Most of those are in the Psalms. That meant a lot to me uh, during my time away. And uh, I I, I hope that they'll mean a lot to you. And, And one of those Psalms is Psalm 139. Uh, God really used this psalm uh, just to encourage my heart to to remind me of God's knowledge of me, and the title this morning is Know Your God. We're going to read all about God's great knowledge of us, and I think the challenge is then for us to know our God. We know people, we know things on different levels, right? Different levels of relationship, different levels of knowledge that we have with, with each other. Is my, are the monitors on? I'm getting a lot of echo up here. Um, but we, we know people on different levels of relationship or knowledge. Let me give you a few things to consider when we think about relationships, about people. How well do you know your spouse? If you're married, if you are parents, how well do you know your children? How well do you know your parents? So if that's whether you are a a, a child in, in, in the home or a teenager, or maybe you have adult parents that are still alive, how well do you know your parents? How well do you know your friends? How well do you know your coworkers? How well do you know your brothers and sisters here in this church that, that you're sitting with? So I would surmise that your answer for each one of those questions, it would be in the affirmative. You know your spouse if you're married. You know your children if you have them. Uh, you know your parents. Uh, you know your friends, you know your co-workers, you know people in this church. You, while while your, your answer would be, yes, I know, it, it would be in the affirmative, the extent of that knowledge would differ greatly, wouldn't it? See, your head knowledge or your working knowledge of those different individuals would probably differ greatly from your experiential knowledge or your devotion to the the various people in the list I just mentioned. So it's one thing to, uh, to know somebody in hypotheticals. It's another thing to know someone experientially. So if we go a step further and we say how well do you know God? What would your answer be? Is your knowledge of God something that exists in hypotheticals or tested reality? you understand the the, the significance of that question? Does your knowledge of God, is it something that exists in hypotheticals? Well, I know this is true of God. I know this is true of God. And it's all textbook answers. Or do you know God in tested reality? You see, we can read about God. We can study God. We can even preach about God or give a Sunday school lesson about God, but yet not really know Him. See, many people would probably say, whether they would admit it or not, they would probably say that, do you know God? Who is God? Would you describe God? Many people would say words like distant, cold, degrading, demanding, harsh, inconsistent, elusive. Just kind of out there, but don't really know. Melancholy. Yet are those the way that Scripture defines God? As we look at Psalm 139, I want you to behold your God. To behold your God. I want you to see who God is and not only to see who God is from Psalm 139, but also to see how we, our lives are then shaped by this knowledge, this understanding of God. So we're going to look at Psalm 139 over the next two weeks. We're just going to look at the first half of it this week and the second half of it next week. And the, the, the key theme, I think, of Psalm 139 that we need to glean uh, is this. It'll be on, on the screen for you. God is knowable because he has made himself known to us. Is, do we have that on the screen? Oh, okay. All right, I got a different uh, picture back here. God is knowable because he has made himself known to us. So this morning, before we even get into Psalm 139, which Tim just read, I want you to ask yourself, are you sitting here right now thinking you know God because of what other people are saying, because of experiences that you've had, and you're interpreting who God is? Or are you gaining your understanding of who God is from Scripture? Because that's what we're going to look at this morning. God is knowable because He's made Himself known to us. So we're going to look at how God is described. Let's open with the word of prayer. Father, I pray that this morning that you would be active in our midst. Lord, there is no doubt many, Lord, all of us struggle in different situations and, and at different times with what you are doing, what you are up to. Uh, do, do you hear our prayers? Do, do you know what's going on? Are you being negligent, Lord? We all struggle with that. We see the Psalms the praying prayers, where they are conflicted with these thoughts. But Lord, we know that You are a good God. You are a God that loves us. You are a God that knows us. So, Lord, this morning I pray that you would give us a greater glimpse into who you are. And Lord, because you desire to have a relationship with us, you are not content for us just to know these things from the pages of Scripture, but you allow us to go through difficulty, to go through various hardships, so that we can then see... That the things we read of are true. So, Lord, would you please direct our time together today in Jesus' name? Amen. This morning we're going to look at two characteristics or ways that God is described in verses one to twelve. Uh, these can be, these are, are tied in with God's attributes. How many of you have ever heard that, that big word omniscient? That means God is all-knowing. God knows all things. And we're going to see in verses 1-6 to that that David is speaking of God's omniscience, his all-knowingness, yet he's doing it not just on a cosmic level, He he is talking about God's omniscience at a personal level. And that is where we ultimately have to get to as well. So number one, we are called to know our God in accordance with the comfort of God's knowledge. The fact that God knows us should bring us comfort. In fact, we are so quick to kind of put la- just put labels on God that are very true and that need to be declared Such as, God is omniscient. And we say, yes, God knows everything that's going on in the world at this time. And we need to be be aware of that. But are we practically living as if that is not true? And most of the time, we are living that way because we have not personalized this reality of God. We're going to see, first of all, that this knowledge of God that is to bring us comfort, it is, first of all, it is a perfect knowledge. It is absolutely perfect. Does anyone here have perfect knowledge? Do you have perfect knowledge of your spouse or your friends or your children? Many times you wish you did, right? If I could just get into that head of his or her... And just know, did you know God has no problems with that? In verse one, we see a truth statement. In other words, this is what I can know. If you are, uh, if you're familiar, you remember your high school or college days, or or you're currently in high school and you're writing a research paper. A good research paper always has a what. A thesis statement, a statement of truth. This is your main idea, and the rest of your paper is going to describe why that's true. Verse 1 is the thesis statement, the main truth that David is going to unpack in the rest of these six verses. What does he say in verse 1? O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. O oh, Lord, You have searched me and known me. The rest of verses 2-6 to six are going to describe the depth of God's knowledge. It's so interesting in this prayer, I just, just looking at verse 1, it starts off with God's personal name, Lord. Or in the Hebrew, Yahweh. It's God's covenantal name. The name by which God has given man that he has, has committed himself to to fulfill His purposes, not only cosmically, but with His people. In fact, if you were to read Psalm 139, it would just go right to, it wouldn't even be the O, it would go right to, Lord, this is a psalm of praise and and declaration to the Lord. This is not a me-centered psalm although the psalm has to do with us this is a god-centered psalm And man one of the ways one of the reasons that we struggle in our relationship with God and putting trust in God is because we are focusing on the wrong object on me on how I'm interpreting things on on my thoughts And David here, who writes Psalm 139, is saying, no, our minds have to be directed towards God. Outside of ourselves. You see, this is a personal God that we have. But this is also a God who knows. Notice it says, you have searched me and known me. Now, you don't have to, to, to do a whole lot of thought about God to know God doesn't need to search things out to know them, does He? I mean, for instance, look at verse 4. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, You know it all uh, Verses 15 to 16 that we'll talk about next week. Uh, my frame was not hidden from You when I was being made in secret. Uh, verse 16, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. God doesn't have to do a searching out. In the the context of I don't know anything, I better find out. What David is doing here is he is putting the depth of God's knowledge in terms that we can understand. God's knowledge, this is a figurative, figurative expression that nothing escapes God's knowledge. You can't trick God. You can't fool God. God is the expert detective because He knows all things. This is talking, as one person says, God's knowledge is detailed, thorough, and exhaustive. I would encourage you, if you are struggling this morning, does God know my situation? To write those three adjectives down. God is detailed. His knowledge is detailed, thorough, and exhaustive. It's not that God knows this little part about me, but not this part. It's not I wonder what's going, that God must kind of just be aloof. You have searched me with a perfect knowledge You have known me. This word known is used four times, excuse me, five times in this psalm. Four of those are of God's knowledge of us, and then only once in verse 14, it is used of ourselves that my soul knows your wonderful works because I have seen it. I trust in it. So what's the truth statement? What can I know? That God knows me with a perfect knowledge. And then verses 2 to 4, give a truth description. In other words, why can I know this? Why can I be so sure of this? And I would like to suggest verses 2 and 3 show us that God is not a distant God. It may feel like God is a distant God, it may, you may be sitting there like Job and you're like, God, where are you? And That's why Job is, is, is in our Bible. It gives us hope to know the character of God that even when God seems miles away, He is not. We see in verse 2, why can I say confidently you have searched me and known me? Verse 2, You know when I sit down and when I rise up. In other words, He knows all of our days. Uh, This is a poetic description. When I sit down and when I rise up. Basically, He's saying everything in between. When I'm active and when I am at rest. Lord, You know it. There is no part of my day, there is no part of my life that You are unaware of. Not even those insignificant times, moms, where you're changing your baby's diapers and it seems like just one out of a million. Those things do not get missed by God. Deuteronomy 6, it, uh, there's a familiar figure of speech that, that uh, God tells uh, the children of Israel, the, the parents, that you shall talk of the commandments of God and the ways of God to your children when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. In other words, he's saying every opportunity that God gives throughout the course of the day, you are to be actively seeking to teach your children about the ways of God. You see, God is not a distant God. He he knows when you sit down and when you rise up. Uh, He knows as you're sitting here this morning everything that you're thinking, feeling, going through, positive or negative. The Psalms are are, are not just randomly put in the the book of Psalms, each Psalm. They're they're strategically put there. Uh, the, The last time that the word sit is used is in Psalm 137 and verse 1. This is a song of lament. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. I mean, this, this, tell, this tells me, and it would tell the, the Jewish reader that is, that is reading and worshiping through, through the Psalter, the, 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 the Psalms, Even in the most desperate situation for an Israelite, they are taken into captivity, sitting in a foreign nation and weeping, God is aware. God is taking note. Not only that, but it says at the end of verse 2, you discern my thoughts from afar. What's interesting, the first part of verse 2 talks about our activeness we're sitting down, we're rising, everything in our day God is aware of. But then, you discern my thoughts from afar. That, that word afar, having the idea of beforehand, uh, before we're even thinking them, God knows them. So verse 2 starts out talking about the outward actions, which would be hard for any human. No human knows everything you're doing. But it even is greater than that, that God knows not only the external, but the internal. God knows our very plans, our purposes, our desires, our thoughts. Have you ever heard the phrase, a penny for your thoughts? Guess what? the one who owns a cattle on a thousand hills doesn't need that penny to know your thoughts, to know your hurts, to know your fears, to know your discouragements, to know what drives you. God knows them before you even know them. Can can I just stop and ask you, is this your God that you know? Would you describe Him like this? Or have you, like so often I, have you lost your way uh, in in thinking um, according to circumstances or your own self being a guide and not Scripture? You see, God knows us, verse 4 shows, or or, excuse me, at verse 3, we'll continue... You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. There again, you have the expression, um, no matter what I'm doing, you, you know my journeys. That word path it can also be translated, you know my journeying, my going through life. You know all about it, no matter what state I'm in, whether it's Pennsylvania or or Georgia, or whatever. You know my journeys. You know where I've been. You know where I'm going. You know my lying down. That when I'm in, at rest, you have the two extremes and everything in between, and you are acquainted with all my ways, with all my paths, with all my actions. You see, God is not a distant God. God. But as verse 4 shows us, God knows us better than we know ourselves. Can you imagine this, verse 4? Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Now we know the Scriptures say that that the tongue is kind of a window into the heart, right? How many of you ever were in a situation, maybe you're at home, maybe you're on your way to church, uh, wherever it is, And you just get so upset, and you say something, and you're like, whoa, I didn't even mean to say that. Or, whoa, I just lashed out at this family member, and I don't even know where that came from. Have you ever had an experience like that? Most of you are so spiritual, obviously. I would say we all have. How many many of you want to be real authentic? Anybody have that this morning? Okay, we have a few hands. What this, is say, God, what this is saying is, God knows us at our deepest level, which is the heart. Before a word ever utters our tongue, God is not only aware of what we will say, but He's aware of the, the, what's going on in our heart that caused that to be said. That is amazing. That is where the rubber meets the road with the omniscience of God. The all-knowingness of God. God knows us better than we know ourselves. I would say just from the first three verses, that's a pretty perfect knowledge, isn't it? But this comfort that we can have in realizing that God's knowledge is perfect, it doesn't just stop there because there's another description here with this knowledge of God. The way I put it is it is a not only a perfect knowledge, but a proactive knowledge. We just kind of saw that in verse 4 that before a word is ever said, the Lord knows it. But then notice verse 5. You hem me in, behind and before And lay your hand upon me. A proactive knowledge. Don't say, God is not involved in my life. Now you can say, I don't see how God is involved in my life right now. But please do not say, as we see from verse 5, that God is not involved in my life. Here we see a visual word picture. God's hand is directing His people. Hemming me in is not always used in a good context. In fact, in in, in other places in the Old Testament, it can be used of a siege of a city. The Babylonians set siege to Jerusalem. God will hem in. He will lay siege to His enemies. So this can be, depending on, your, uh, uh, depending on your relationship with God, if you are a believer or an unbeliever, this could be either really great news or really bad news. And if you're desiring the things of God above the things of yourself, this can be really great news if you're seeking your own way. In rebellion against God, that's really bad news. God's not going to let you just go your own way if you're truly His child. You hem me in. God many times says no to one thing or no to another thing because He as the perfect Father knows, as we'll see, the path we need to take. In everything that God does, whether it is a tough hemming in or a gentle, a good hemming in, where we know God is directing us right where He needs to, David writes this in very personal terms. He doesn't use just the the normal word for hand. It's the word that elsewhere uh, in in the Old Testament it can be translated generically as hand, but it's also translated as hand palm you hem me in and you you lay your palm upon me so you kind of have a few word pictures that that here we are this little these people on this little pea-sized planet in in god's perspective and god has his gentle palm guiding and directing us cutting off one way opening up another That's God's activity in our lives. It is the same word, palm, that says, uh, speaking of Israel, and and by extension, all of us as, 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 as believers in Christ and now spiritually children of Abraham, he says, your names are inscripted on the palm of my hand. That's God. That's who God is. And He is proactively leading in our lives even when we don't think He is. Because man, who would have came up with the message of the cross? Wouldn't there have been a, in our thoughts a more sensible way to redeem his, God's people than through kind of the roundabout way of the cross? Well, if God, if we don't understand uh, the 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 vastness of the message of the gospel, we embrace it by faith. How much uh, are are we to understand really any of God's ways according to our own understandings? You see, God God's knowledge is a proactive knowledge. And then verse 6, as David ends this segment, this first stanza of, of, of this psalm, speaking of God's knowledge, we see that this is a praiseworthy knowledge. Man, when we note how perfect God's knowledge is and it's proactive, God never has to just be taken off guard and respond to a situation in emergency mode like we have to so many times. No, God is proactively leading us. This should bring us to praise. Look at verse 6. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. You see, folks, when we get a glimpse of God, what should it do to us? It should bring us to humility. Are we in awe of the vastness of the wonder of God and we realize, God, when I think about your knowledge, not only of this entire universe, but your knowledge of me, it is so high, it is so exalted that I could never get to the place of saying, my understanding matches yours. Never. But how many times, practically, are we living as if our knowledge does match God's? Kind of like the phrase you you maybe have heard, a theological uh, uh, theological theist, but a practical atheist. You believe in God with with with, with your mind, but yet, and 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 many times even your heart, but yet you're living in such a way that you're denying that there even is a God. You see, God's knowledge should bring comfort. But then secondly, before we conclude, there's a second characteristic of God that David describes in this first half. In verses 8 to 12, we see not only God's omniscience, His vast knowledge, we see God's omnipresence. What is omnipresence? That He's everywhere present, right? God is an omnipresent God. Wow! Here's two huge points in our favor as, as followers of Jesus Christ, and we've been adopted into the family of God that we can call God Father. That God knows all things. He knows me with the perfect knowledge. And that there's, God is everywhere. There's nowhere that now I'm hidden from God's perfect knowledge. Again, a double-edged sword, so to speak, depending on your heart's purposes and desires. But this second stanza of this psalm, it should bring us security. The security of God's presence. Not only can we be comforted, but we can rest secure. Verses 7 to 10 show us that God's presence, it is consistent. It's not here today, gone tomorrow. Again, David, by way of a question in verse 7, is now going to do the exact same thing he did in verses 1 to 6, where verse 1, he states a truth, and verses 2 to 6, he says, here's why this is true. In verse 7, he's going to state a question with an implied answer, And then in verses 8 to 12, he's going to say, here's why this is true. So let's look at this statement of certainty in verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? The implied answer there is what? That there is nowhere that we could ever go. David here is emphasizing, again, not us, but God, just like verse 1. If you were to read the word order of this in the Hebrew, it would be, uh, where do I go? And then spirit, and then presence, and then flee. Have you ever looked at a picture Uh, I assume we all have. Like a framed picture? You have them hanging in your walls? What is the thing that draws your attention that you are supposed to look at and find significance in in a framed picture? The photo, right? In the middle of the frame. That is what David is poetically doing here. He's talking about fleeing and going and in the middle is the beautiful canvas of God. Your spirit and your presence. God, they are always with me. That is the picture that I need to place on the wall of my heart. That no matter where I go or where I flee, God. That's what David is is trying to do here poetically in this psalm is emphasize God. Now we like Jonah can often try to flee from God, right? In fact, the very word flee there is the same one that's used in Jonah 1 in verse 3. Jonah fled from God to head away from Nineveh. But no matter how hard we try, we cannot escape God's presence. Again, what a comfort to us who long for God in our life. Verse 8 and 9 show us why this is true. It says, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Now, I don't know about you, I like the ascending to heaven part. I don't know about making my bed in Sheol. Uh, Sheol Uh, in the Old Testament, uh, was often referred to as the realm of the dead. Someone dies, they go to the realm of the dead, to Sheol. David is saying whether in life or in death, you are there. He's saying again, uh, 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 poetically, he's saying the highest height, the very heavens where your presence dwells, or the lowest depth, the realm of the dead, Sheol, anything in between, you are there. What he's doing is he's giving a vertical axis. Axis, You are there, God. But then look at verse 9. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, we'll see verse 10 says that God is. So now he's not only going from a vertical axis, uh, from, from uh, uh, north and south, now he's going on a horizontal one. Where does the sun rise? We saw those sunflowers, if you were driving that way Matt was talking about, where do they, where do they face? When the sun rises to the east. Again, David is saying poetically, if, uh, in, in verse 9, if I take the wings of the morning... Where the sun rises or dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. From an Israelite perspective, David who's writing this psalm to the west is the Mediterranean Sea. And he's saying, no matter if I am at the farthest point east where the sun rises or the farthest point west where the sea is, you are there. North, south, east, west. You are there. This is an all-encompassing presence. In verse 10, we see the comfort that this presence gives us. Even there, your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. Even the farthermost part of the sea, and, and, and in the Old Testament, the sea was a place of chaos, of disruption, of of, of of just utter chaos. Even in those moments, you are there. And not only is God there, because again, as good Bible uh good Christians that want to be theologically accurate, we can say, you know what? God is everywhere. But listen, it's only those Christians that know God not only theologically, but experientially through the ups and downs of life that can say verse 10 and mean it. Even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Have you been to places in your past where you have seen that no matter where you are, God was true. God was faithful. God led. It was His very hand, the hand of power, That has led me. And because we are people that are frail and fragile, and and, and like the, 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 the hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, not only is his hand leading us, but it says in verse 10, his right hand, his hand of power, is holding us. It will not let go even when our grip gets loose. You all remember, holding. Uh, if, if, if your children are raised or are older, you all remember when your child's a little toddler, holding their hands, maybe going across a street or a parking lot. Uh, Rachel and I, to, to our uh, divine surprise of God's providence, we're now in, we've been in that stage again, uh, and we're holding Sammy's little hand. And that grip often gets loose, doesn't it? All of a sudden, they can be holding your little finger and, and, and the pressure's no longer there. But as a parent, a protective parent, a loving parent, you do not let them. Again, we're imperfect, so sometimes they get away. But ideally, our grip gets tighter And keeps our children in safety. That's the picture we have here. God is not only leading us with his hand, but his very right hand, his hand of power, is holding and clinging to us, just like the song we sing He will hold me fast. That brings us comfort. The psalmist in Psalm 73 says, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. In Isaiah 41, God says, For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, Fear fear not. I am the one who helps you. And as we close today, we look at these final two verses. What should this do for us? The security of God's presence it should give us assurance assurance not only is god's presence consistent it is continually he is continually with us god's presence gives us a consistent assure assurance verse 11 says if i say Surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is as bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. So we can have assurance then despite our desperation. Do you notice, can can you hear the desperation in verse 11? In other words, surely uh, beyond a doubt this is the big one. Surely, if I say the darkness shall cover me, what was once light is now night. I am in a deep valley. I am in a deep concern. I, Whatever the case is, let the Holy Spirit uh, be the one to point that out in your heart. Even in our most desperate situation, we see that there's hope. There's assurance. In fact, that word cover, the darkness shall cover me. Uh, uh, literally, the darkness shall crush me. It's the very word that's used in Genesis 3.15 talking about the one to come will bruise or crush the head of the serpent and his heel will be Crushed. See, the reason that we can have confidence that we will not be crushed is because Jesus has crushed the head of the serpent. If God is for us, who could be against us? He who, did not, uh, who freely gave us His Son. Why can we have assurance despite our desperation? Because of who God is, verse 12 Even that very darkness that I fear, what does it say? It is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day. Why? For darkness is as light with you. We have a conquering God. Hebrews says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, forever. Nothing overtakes God. How do we know that? Uh, what can we, we? What visible evidence do we have that nothing can overtake God? The answer is Jesus Christ. As John one five says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. God is not limited by darkness. So as we close today, the call to know your God. Do you know your God? Are you reliant upon a head knowledge for God? A knowledge void of everyday life? to guide your spiritual journey? Or are you taking the truths of God's Word? Seeking to go to God's Word, not your own experiences or your own interpretation of those experiences to to say who God is. Are you going to God's Word in faith saying, God, this is who you are, This is what I place my faith in. And would you deepen that faith as I walk with you through the journey, through the rising and the sitting, through the north, south, east, west. Would you help me to walk by faith knowing you You see, God is knowable because He has made Himself known to us. And how does Psalm 139, how does the Scripture make God known to us? It declares His watch care over us. It declares His presence with us. And the question then, are we going to live by faith and not sight?